Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Tony Park's African thrillers wrap high-octane action against a background of safari park politics and wildlife protection. There's 17 of them, and they've made him an international bestseller. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today Tony gives us the true story of the undiscovered Australian who's the key protagonist of his latest book, and he talks about living his dream life. But before we get to Tony, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Tony's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review so others will find us too. But now, here's Tony. Hello there, Tony, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. It's great to be here, and thank you for having me. Look, um... You had a very long career as a journalist, a very full career, but was there a once upon a time moment when you thought you really did want to write fiction rather than just the, the non-fiction that you were doing? Yeah, Jenny, I, I think it goes way back even before I started working, before I went to school. I think I knew from the time I was a very small boy when my mum got me reading at a very early age, and I fully believe it's the best gift a parent or a grandparent to, can give to a little kid is a love of books, a love of reading. I, I knew from probably the time I started reading that what I wanted to do in life was was write a book. I mean, she would sort of park me in the municipal library. <laughs> I'd be sent there for after school care, I think, um, unattended. And I'd walk around looking at all these books in the little town where I grew up. And I thought, someone must be writing all these books and I would like to be one of those people. So I knew from the time I was a very small boy, if ever anyone asked me what I wanted to do when I grow up, I would say I wanted to write a book and particularly I wanted to write fiction. And was that in rural Australia somewhere? I was in the western suburbs of, um, of Australia out in Campbelltown. Uh, and um, interesting, interestingly enough, I was actually born in New Zealand. I've got an Aussie mum and a Welsh dad. And uh, I was born in, in New Zealand, but came to Australia or back to my mum's country when I was about um, about four years old, three years old. And so I grew up in the western suburbs of Sydney. And, and you know, like it was a pretty pretty basic existence. You know, we weren't particularly well off. Uh, the town uh, on the outskirts of Sydney had a very small library. It's one of those things where you know, when you're a little kid, it seems big, but I. I went back out there. They've got a very big new library now, but I went to the building where the old library was, and it's probably not much bigger than the average lounge room. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, it was where I remember spending a lot of time. We were always getting books out of the library, always, and I was reading. She got me reading Biggles books when I was a little boy. I'm not sure if any of your listeners are old enough to remember Biggles books. They probably <laughs> are. <laughs> <laughs> terribly, terribly unpolitically correct books about a fighter pilot in the First World War written for, for young boys, you know, and I thought when I was growing up, well, 
I'd like to to write books. I also wanted to be a fighter pilot, but I worked out that when I went to school, I couldn't do mathematics and I couldn't do science. So, uh, so a job in the Air Force were out of reach because you needed those things to qualify. So I thought I'll still pin my hopes on being a writer. Look, you've made your name with African Adventures and you now split your life between Australia and Africa. When did you first go to Africa and or fall in love with Africa? Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, it was never really on my radar. I never had any desire to travel there when I was younger. My wife, Nicola, and I, we got married. We're both quite young when we got married. And we don't have kids, so we travelled a fair bit when we were younger. And like a lot of Aussies and Kiwis, we, we travelled around Europe and Asia and ended up in Australia. And in 1995, Nicola said to me, well, we're going to Africa. And I was like, okay, sure, we're going to Africa. You know, I wasn't—I was quite interested, but I would never say it was a burning ambition of mine to go there. So we went on a little safari holiday to South Africa, Zimbabwe, and Botswana. And I think because, probably, possibly because I was so completely unprepared, I'd, I'd never read anything or researched it. She did all the planning for the trip. That when I got there, it kind of blew me away because she'd hired us a little car to to drive around and I thought we were going to be on some escorted safari or something. So very quickly I had to work out how to navigate my way around this amazing continent through these incredible game parks full of all these amazing wild animals that I'd only seen as a a little boy in a zoo once in my life, I think. And now all of a sudden I was in the midst of it and I think it bowled me over, you know. Uh, What happened to us happens to a lot of foreigners that visit that continent. It's something hooks you. I'm, I'm not exactly sure whether it's, the wildlife or the scenery or the people that you meet who are incredibly warm and welcoming all have a story that's just amazing. Uh, Or the cultures or the history, probably all of those things just sucked me in. And I think also if anyone's ever been on a safari holiday, it's not your normal sort of vacation. It's not as though you say, today we're going to the museum and tomorrow we're going to the cathedral. And and I like all those sorts of things. It's like you literally do not know what is around the next corner. From minute to minute, day to day, it changes and it's so unpredictable. But it is addictive in a way. The more you see, the more more I saw, the more I wanted to see, and the more I learned, the more I wanted to learn. So, so that was in 1995. We got hooked, and I think by the end of that first trip, we'd already planned a return visit. We've been back every year since then, and now, as you say, we, we live half our lives there. We're, we're seven years ago, we bought a house in South Africa, so we live six months of the year in Africa and six months of the year in Australia, and that's where I found the inspiration I think, for writing, which is very important for, for a writer. Yes, because all of your books have been set in Africa. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, the the first trip in 1995, uh, slightly predated, but almost coincided with my attempt to to write. I left work, um, full-time work in public relations. I left journalism and went to work in PR. And I left a very good job in public relations in about 1996 to try and write a book. Had a go, failed. Ended up back at work for a couple of years. And I think it was on our third trip to Africa that uh, we, we went for a long trip. Previously, we'd been for sort of short vacations, you know, two or three-week holidays. And on our third trip, we we had the opportunity to go for about four months. And we bought an old Land Rover and some secondhand camping gear. And we set off without a plan. You know, we, we didn't know where we were going to go. And I, and I had a go at writing a book. And I thought, well, I'll just set a book on a tour around Africa. Uh, because that's where we were going 
and uh, started writing again in my second attempt to write a novel. And fortunately, that one got published by Pan Macmillan as Far Horizon, which became my first African novel. And my publisher said, you can write the Africa books for us. And I said, thanks, that'll do me. And I've done at least a book a year since then, two last year, but uh, yeah, up to 17 now. Yeah, so that 17th book is Ghosts in the Park, and we'll get on to talking about that in more detail. But it's interesting that it feeds very nicely into another thing that I noticed in Ghosts in the Past, and that is you have one of your characters, Susan, talking about Australia and Africa, and she says something very interesting that I thought quite possibly reflects your own views. So just forgive me, I'll read a little bit from it. It said, Africa's how Australia likes to think it is, she says about Africa, we're more in touch with the bush, closer to the land, freer and more adventurous, more reckless. And I wondered if that's how you see Africa yourself in comparison with Australia. Oh, dear. Sorry, Australia. Did I really write that? <laughs> <laughs> no, it is It is something I believe. You know, I, I think in Australia, look, we're very lucky here in Australia and New Zealand, um, but I know certainly speaking for Australia, uh, we live in an increasingly urbanised environment. That's the fact, yeah. is that the majority of us live in the coastal fringes. And we, our, our policies, our, our politics, um, our economies are very much focused on that fringe of, of our country. Um, wrongly, you know, I mean, but that is, that is the fact of life here. Um, however, I think a lot of Aussies, if you ask them, they, they would feel some affinity with the bush and the land and, and things. The reality of it is that most of us don't really get a chance to explore most of our, our, our wonderful big country. Uh, in, in Africa, in South Africa, Southern Africa, it's different. One of the things I, I noticed and I think I was quite envious of and that surprised me is that um, uh, in South Africa, there's not just a rite of passage. It's, it's like you sort of take for granted a, an affinity with and a connection with not only the bush but with wildlife. I mean, you, the average kid that grows up, you know, in a suburban sort of existence like I did, say, in Australia, also has access just a few short hours of drive away on the family holiday to these incredible places like the Kruger National Park in South Africa and just across the border in Zimbabwe and elsewhere, the Kalahari Desert, you know, there's Namibia. Um, for your family holiday, you know, when you hitch up the caravan, you know, instead of just going to the beach, you can be out there in amongst the lions and the elephants and the leopards and the buffaloes and the rhinos and and the the because of the geography of the country and the accessibility of the big game parks of Southern Africa and South Africa in particular has the most wonderful and most wonderfully accessible national parks. Uh, so today a kid, you know, a kid growing up, no matter what their background and pretty well whatever their socioeconomic background, has the chance to kind of immerse themselves in this amazing natural environment. Uh, and for, for those of us growing up in kind of more urbanised countries, particularly Australia, you know, it's a stretch yes. to get out to the outback. Yeah. You know? It's a major logistical challenge. So so I think the the connection between the people and the land is stronger in, in Africa. I think it's an ideal, I think, in many ways in, in Australia and perhaps other more urbanised parts of the world, and it's something we miss and it's something we're probably the poorer for for not having easy access to it as well. 
Yes, I think that your books give us a wonderful way to to live that, you know, by proxy. It really does. They do really take you into the African bush. And I thought, reading a couple of the earlier ones before Ghosts in the Park, that they would be a great introduction for somebody who was planning to do a safari because they give you such an insight into what's happening in that part of the world today. And for people who think of safaris maybe as they were a decade or so ago, there seems to be some remarkably modern um, sort of stuff that's happening in terms of tracking and wildlife protection, et cetera, which your books go into in quite a bit of detail. Do you find that people respond to you in that way? Yeah, I think that's a really good question, a really good observation. I mean, the books, I, I write the books, all of them the same way I wrote that first book. So I write them on location. So as I'm travelling around uh, on safari and learning and watching and observing, I'm writing that into my into my novels. And that could be descriptions of the natural landscape and the animals or, as you pointed out, what's happening in terms of issues. You know, I mean, unfortunately, the problem of poaching is still big in Africa, across Africa. Um, you know, rhinos are hunted for their horns, elephants for their ivory, pangolins are killed for their scales, vultures are killed. It, go, it goes on and on. But the interesting thing that I've, I find as I travel and I learn is I get an insight into the good work being done in conservation and in, in out-and-out protection. You know, there is a, a bit of a war going on to protect some of these endangered animals. And in technology, uh, high technology in terms of uh, drones and cameras and radar and all sorts of electronic monitoring systems that come into play. And as I wrote about in the last book, Incentive of Fear, old-fashioned but just as effective methods such as using sniffer dogs and tracker dogs yeah. to to detect uh, ivory and rhino horn and to catch poachers are increasingly being used in that theatre of war there in, in Africa. So there's so much to learn. And I think I, I think your observation probably is right. If, if People could almost use these books as a guidebook, I think, in many ways, because wherever I happen to be, I put in places to stay and places where I've stayed and places I've visited, restaurants I've eaten in and, and experiences that I've, I've had. But I also try to, um, you know, ground them in fact as well to and, and look at some of the contemporary issues because you don't have to spend too much time uh, travelling in, in, in Africa. Even if you're on a safari in a game park, pretty quickly you learn about some of the serious issues that people and wildlife are facing in those continents. Yeah. Now, Ghosts in the Past is a dual timeline story and I, I think it's probably one of the most complex plots you've done because it stretches from yeah. Australia, contemporary Australia, back to Africa and traces the story of an Australian and his great-great-grandfather, I think it is, in terms of um, lineage. How did you come across, and it's based partly on a true story, so how did you come across this story initially? Yeah, it's um, you're right, it, it is the the most complex book I've written. Um, I like to keep myself challenged as a writer to try things a little bit different from time to time. Uh, it's it's a job that I love doing. It's my passion, but I think it's always good to keep yourself challenged and interested in, in whatever you're doing. Uh, the story I came across, I was writing an earlier book uh, called An Empty Coast, which is set in Namibia. I don't generally do a lot of research before I start writing. I tend to research after the fact. You know, I kind of make it up and then I fill in the blanks if I need things to be clear. But this was a little bit different because uh, when I was researching at Empty Coast, I, I read for fun. I read the history of Namibia just to bring myself up to speed on the country. It's an amazing country. It was formerly a German colony known as German Southwest Africa uh, back in the late uh, 19th and early 
20th century. And Namibia is a beautiful country, tucked away at the southwest corner of the continent of Africa, largely arid, but with you know, amazing scenery, very culturally rich as well. And in this history of Namibia, there was a, a mention of uh, a conflict uh, that was fought from 1904 to 1907. Uh, well, not more than a mention, you know, quite a bit, because this was a pivotal moment in Namibia's history. It's when two of the indigenous uh, groups of people rose up against the German colonisers. So the Nama people uh, who live in the far south of Namibia and the Herero in the centre had been disenfranchised by the German colonial authorities. They'd lost their land during a protracted, protracted drought um, they had been given loans which they were unable to pay off and they ended up defaulting by losing their cattle and they were really given a rough deal and they rose up militarily against the, the Germans. Now, when I was reading the history of this conflict, which is quite well known in that part of Africa, there was a, a literally a one-line mention that a young Australian guy by the name of Edward Lionel Pressgrave had served with the Nama rebels. He had allied himself to this very charismatic, very successful guerrilla leader by the Jacob Marengo. Uh, and I thought, what was this young Australian doing <laughs> fighting alongside these rebels in this very remote corner of Africa in the desert? And how did he end up there? And I filed it away in the back of my mind and thought, that's probably worth a book. You know, and then a few years went by and I found myself ready to write a, another story and I thought, I'll just find out about this chap. And I did a little little search on him and found that in the meantime, since I'd read that book, another Aussie, a, an academic from Macquarie University in, in Sydney called uh, Dr. Peter Curzon, had also read the same book that I'd had. It also piqued his interest. And he'd gone off and researched this guy's life in detail and written a little book about him, a self-published history of the life of this Edward Lionel Pressgrave, which I found incredibly fascinating. And I thought I could base a book on that. You know, what the heck was this young 24-year-old Aussie doing in Africa at that time? And how did he end up joining this noble but um, ultimately uh, doomed rebellion against the German colonialists? And that's where I got the idea for Ghosts of the Past. Yeah, and, I, and you do dedicate the book to Pressfield, don't you? Yeah, and that's something I've never done before. All my books have been dedicated to my wife, as is this one. But this guy, Edward Pressgrave, I think he deserves to be a little bit better known. I can tell you a little bit about him, if you like. Yes, I'd love you to. So um, so I've I, I worked out his story and I, I, it just seemed to me that he was such an amazing character that I thought, you know, most people, particularly here in Australia, should get to know this guy. Our most famous identity from the Anglo-Boer War, which predated that war, is a guy by the name of Harry Harbord Breaker Morant. You know, oh, yes. Breaker Morant yeah. was an Australian who had been celebrated in literature and movies. And his claim to fame is that he shot unarmed Boer prisoners of war, and his defence was that he was following orders. Now he got a, he got the rough end of the stick from the British authorities, without a doubt. And I'm not trying to minimise that. But I thought, well, now this is a different character. Edward Pressgrave also served in the Boer War. At the age of 20, he and his dad, his father, were so gripped by patriotic fervour to defend the British Empire that they got on the first ship they could find and sailed from Sydney, where they were from to Cape Town in South Africa to join the fight against the Boers in what was known, subsequently known as the Anglo-Boer War. They didn't even sign up with an Aussie unit. They just got on a ship and went to South Africa to get into the war as quickly as they possibly could. It's hard to imagine that kind of sentiment these days. And they joined the first unit they could find, which was a Scottish unit. And they served throughout the war. 
possibly not this distinction, but certainly honourably. There's no suggestion that there was anything other than honourable service. And at the end of that war, his father, like most of the other Aussies and Kiwis and Canadians that went to serve in that war, came home. But young Edward Presgrave, who was 20 when he signed up and went to South Africa, stayed in Africa. We don't know why. Maybe he was like me. Maybe he got hooked on the place or maybe he liked the wildlife. I don't know. But maybe he saw a chance to make his fortune. But he ended up staying in South Africa and became a horse trader. There was a surplus of horses after the Boer War when the Aussies and the Canadians and the Kiwis and the Brits all left their horses behind when they sailed home. Now, across the border in southwest Africa, as I said before, the, the Nama and the Herero people had risen up against the Germans and they needed horses. So this guy starts selling horses across the border into neighbouring southwest Africa. But at some point, he ceases to just be a guy who's out to make a quick buck by selling horses. And he joins this rebel leader, Captain Jacob Marengo, in his fight against the Germans and fights in six battles against the Germans. He's so well known that the Germans put a price on his head of 3,000 Deutschmarks, which must have been a fortune at that time, yeah. an absolute fortune. This, and it gives you an indication about how concerned they were about this young, uh, you know, uh, Australian who was fighting with their enemies. Mm. And so a couple of uh, Africana guys who were working for the Germans lured him into a trap. They set up a dodgy deal. He was also trading cattle as well. They lured him across the border into southwest Africa again in between his battles uh, on the pretext of a cattle deal and they shot him. And to give you an indication of the animosity and things that were going on at the time, they shot him in the belly and they left him to die. They didn't even kill him. They never finish him off. So they left him in the desert bleeding. And, and, the, and in the desert there is incredibly cold at night and incredibly hot during the day. And they reported back to the German high command to claim their 3,000 Deutschmarks. The Germans were having none of this. So they sent a patrol out the next day. And this is how the novel starts. They sent a patrol out the next day with a doctor, believe it or not, to check on this guy because they'd heard he wasn't dead. So they got out there. After 27 hours, Edward Pressgrave was still alive against the odds and they killed him in the desert. <laughs> that was how dirty this war was and how much they wanted this bloke gone. What happened in real life is his parents were sent a, you know, a telegram saying, your son has died in German Southwest Africa. They probably had no idea where that was or what he was doing there. And they started a letter-writing campaign to the governments of Germany, Britain, Australia, to try and find out what happened to him. The whole thing was swept under the carpet, and it was swept under the carpet of history, and that's why no one in Australia knows about this bloke who fought in this little-known war but fought alongside a, a rebel leader who was an amazing character in, in, in his own right, you know. And, and so I thought, well, there's, there's got to be a story in that. And that's what Ghost of the Past is loosely based on, on this guy's life. Yes, and uh, that opening with the doctor shooting a, a mortally wounded man anyway, um, it's a very dramatic way to open the book. It, it really is. Yeah, yeah, I thought so. I should hasten to add that this is a work of fiction, so you never know. There could be a slightly happier ending in this. <laughs> but, no, it just seemed to me a fascinating story. And, and the real, I wanted to dedicate the book to Prescribe because uh, this, this was a pivotal moment in the history of what is now Namibia. There are other connections between Australia and Namibia. Interestingly enough, there were Australian military peacekeepers who were very much involved in the transition uh, of, of, of Namibia's freedom uh, back in, uh, in the mid-90s when it went from being southwest Africa, as it was still known, to the modern-day country of Namibia. And he was a young Aussie 
fighting alongside this Jacob Moringa. Jacob Moringa, by the way, was was a guy who was incredibly edu- well educated. He he'd worked on the mines in a supervisory capacity, and his employers had actually sent him to Germany. This is the, uh, the turn of the century, beginning of the twentieth century. They'd sent him to Germany to study. He spoke six languages. Um, he he was the first tribal leader in his people to allow women to speak at their tribal council meetings. Um, he was also a tactical genius. The Germans called him the Black Napoleon, and he led them on a merry dance through the southern parts of, of the colony and had been been at large for a long time. So they had a fair amount of respect for this guy as well too. And, and he takes on this 24-year-old Aussie who's acting as a bit of a uh, an advisor to him and a, and, a, and, a, and a comrade in arms. And I just think it's just a fascinating story that I really wanted to sort of get out there, not just in a novel, but I wanted more people to be aware of this guy. Definitely sounds like there's a movie in there somewhere because you've also got Kruger's Gold, haven't you, which is another interesting side story. Yeah, yeah, there's an enduring legacy, a bit of a rural slash urban myth in South Africa that during the Boer War, the, the Boer's treasurer, their gold repositories from the treasuries in Pretoria were shipped out of the country or maybe not, maybe hidden somewhere in South Africa. So every every couple of years in South Africa, there's a newspaper story about someone claiming to have found this missing hoard of gold uh, that, that legend has it in, in South Africa is buried somewhere between Pretoria and the, and the border of Mon- Modern day Mozambique, where they were trying to ship it out and hit it somewhere. So it, it, there's a there's a bit of a myth in there as well too. But it's yeah, as you say, it's set in the past and in the present. Where this guy's descendant tries to find out what's happened to him, and yeah, there's a bit of buried treasure in there as well. Fantastic. You, I think that the Canberra Times said of you that uh, you know how to write a great action story, and there's plenty of action in this one. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. The interesting thing is um, quite often if people see the covers or they read the blurbs on the book, they think these are kind of boys' own adventure type of things. And I think probably when I started writing, I thought I was writing books for people like me, you know, for middle-aged guys, you know. <laughs> but um, the fact is most of my readers are women, so uh, and I'm very pleased with that as well too. So there's a bit of romance in there, not that women just want to see romance because plenty of my female readers like a good bit of action as well too. Yeah, that's right. Look, perhaps just moving on a little from the specific books to your wider career, you did have, as I mentioned at the beginning, a full career as a journalist, and you also had 34 years in the Australian Army Reserve, including six months in Afghanistan, and I'm just interested in how that life experience might have fed into your book. Yeah, there's a there's a great old adage for writers that it says write what you know, particularly when you you're starting off. And I did serve in the army for a number of years. I served with uh, with people from different countries, uh, with Kiwis, with Americans, with Brits, all over the place. And I served in Afghanistan for a while. So some of that experience has gone into my books. Um, you know, some of the earlier books have got little bits set in Afghanistan. I'm I'm quite interested and involved with um, veterans. From, from recent conflicts. I'm, I'm involved with a UK-based charity called Veterans for Wildlife, which pairs military veterans from some of the recent conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq with anti-poaching units in South Africa where they offer training and mentorship. Um, because, uh, you know, in my service, I I was lucky, you know. Um, I, I uh, Nothing bad happened to me. I, I was serving very much behind a desk in Afghanistan, I hasten to point out. But I did serve with some with some guys, some men and women who did some amazing things overseas. And so I think you draw not only on your own experiences but the experience of the people around you and the times that you live in. And certainly I've written a little bit of that 
into into my novels in the past as well. Yes, I mean, the Centre Fear's got a, a veteran who, and there are IEDs detonating and, and quite a lot of, and then uh, this trilogy where a woman who's um, got a military background is is now a mercenary in Africa, which, Sonia, so you, you, it comes through strongly in those books, doesn't it? It's interesting, like, um, with the uh, Veterans for Wildlife, it's not just male veterans. We uh, we had a female veteran who served in the UK military police and she came over and did some brilliant training for an all-female anti-poaching unit in South Africa called the Black Mumbers. There's a couple of these units, but the Black Mumbers were the first such unit, all-female anti-poaching unit, very groundbreaking in what is a very patriarchal society and and ladies come from quite often quite disadvantaged backgrounds and they're doing an incredibly valuable job working in the field um, patrolling the bush but also spreading the word in their communities about the importance and the value of wildlife to people and they had a female officer who had served interestingly enough she one of her jobs in afghanistan was to mentor uh female um uh, afghan women who were in the in the police and that was a very groundbreaking role for them they'd never had women serving in the police in afghanistan and she'd been training with them. She, she was able to take a lot of that experience that she had into this unit. So, yeah, one of the books with my female mercenary, Sonia Kurtz, who is a recurring character, she starts off the book in the cull leading an all-female anti-poaching unit. And as you say, Instead of Fear, which is about IEDs and tracker dogs, I've also done a few non-fiction books. And a few years ago, I, I did a biography of an Australian dog handler who'd been working in Afghanistan, a book called War Dogs. And some of his experience I put into Scent of Fear where, as I said earlier, um, dogs are increasingly proving to be a game changer in the fight against poaching in Africa. Dogs are currently involved in about 95% of all pursuits and successful arrests of poachers in South Africa. So they're really turning the tables on on dogs. Um, so, yeah, and IEDs were a big problem in Afghanistan that dogs helped us sort out. Uh, so I wrote a book in which fictitiously poachers start setting IEDs to catch rangers and security forces in South Africa uh, a month before that book came out, so it wasn't my fault. Uh, an IED, a booby trap bomb, was found in the Kruger Park and had been set to catch some national parks rangers. So truth is scarier than fiction, yeah. without a doubt. Yeah, and that's what I enjoy about your books. There's quite such a strong sense that you're learning new stuff as well as, you know, having a, an action adventure. Look, if people wanted advice about where to go in South Africa, what tips would you give them for going on safari? Not necessarily South Africa, Africa generally. I know that you've got a little corner of Africa yourself that you, I'm inviting you to talk about as well. But a quick, I mean, it's, I think it's even something you could blog about on your website where you'd recommend people go. Do you get that question often? I, I do, actually. I've just put a new section on the website on tonypark.net is my, my website with travel tips. But, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of people coming to visit Africa. I think it's an amazing continent. I think it's a place you have to see for yourself. Uh, Southern Africa is to, in everything in a nutshell, Southern, Southern Africa, South Africa, uh, Botswana and, and Zimbabwe, uh, are probably for, for people who are wanting uh, uh, an easy introduction to safaris are good because the infrastructure is very first world in those sort of, sort of countries. Things are organised, things happen very easily, the roads are good, the tra public transport is, is good, the airlines are good. Um, they're very easy countries to navigate yourself if you choose to just go over like my wife and I did on our first, uh, first time and hire a car and drive around and explore yourself. Very good self-drive destinations. When you, when you venture up further north, you go into East and Central Africa 
America, things get a little bit wilder, a little bit more rugged, and so you might think about going on a more organised safari there with someone to drive you or fly you around because things are a bit more rough and ready in that part of the continent. But it's an amazing continent to visit. It's quite diverse. So uh, the experiences you can have can vary from, from country to country. Uh, yeah, my wife and I have just recently invested in a little lodge called Nantwich, which is in Wangi National Park, which is the big national park in Zimbabwe, uh, only about an hour and a half drive from Victoria Falls and, and a trip to the magnificent Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe should be on everyone's to-do list if they're planning a trip to, to Africa. And we've got a, a game lodge in a national park only, uh, yeah, only about 100 kilometres from Victoria Falls. So that's my little plug for my little commercial venture. But Zimbabwe is a beautiful country. It's trouble, It has troubles, you know, politically and economically, but it's, it's probably the friendliest, safest country for people to visit in terms of their personal safety and the incidence of crime and things. It's a, it's a beautiful, lovely country, and its people are crying out for – outside support in the in the in the form of tourism it's probably the best thing that people can do to help that country is to just go and just visit and just have a good time because it's widely recognized throughout the continent as is probably the friendliest country to visit in the other continent is there one thing you've done perhaps more than any other that you'd credit with your success in your writing career the one thing i've done i think jenny is it sounds a bit cliched but i followed my dream you know, I, I, I yeah. think it, it's um, perhaps if, if we have an aspiration in our lives, real life all too often will stop us from fulfilling that, you know, like everybody else. I, you know, I, I met someone who got married, got a job, you know, your, your priorities and your focus are kind of on living, you know, and just existing and getting ahead. But if there's, if there's something you want to do and if there's something that you have such a burning passion for, sometimes it's worth a risk. And I was very lucky. That you know, back in '96, even though I failed in my first attempt, um, my wife agreed with me that the way for me to do it was to leave work. I quit a very good job to try for at least six months to write a book. Uh, and while I failed, I later had another go and succeeded. But she supported us through that time. It was a stretch. It was a sacrifice. But um, sometimes you've got to take a risk to follow your dream. And and I think if you if you know it's what you've got to do, and if you've got support. Of loved ones and, and people who can help you, sometimes it's worth taking that first step, even if it's off a cliff and <laughs> you don't know whether your parachutes get open or not. But uh, I think, yeah, what, what the thing I credit with my success is taking a risk and having the support to be able to take that risk. Yeah, that's lovely. Look, turning to Tony as reader, because this is the joys of binge reading, and it's partly predicated on the idea of people these days discovering an author and then serial reading the whole of their work and I think with you that would be very much what would happen people would discover your novels and be happy to read the whole lot um who do you like to binge read and is there somebody that you'd recommend to listeners sure yeah well first of all I like to read anything I haven't written because (laughs) I I spend so much time editing and going over stuff all the time but no it's a very good question I'm a big fan of a few authors and I'm exactly like that I I would rather read everything by one person before I move on to someone else I like Nelson DeMille the American thriller writer there's a great sense of humor and great characterization Uh, on historical fiction I'm a big fan of Bernard Cornwall in his Sharp series and his Arthurian series. I used to love Ken Follett. I've read most of Ken Follett's books. Um, then there's a South African crime writer who I absolutely love, a guy called Dion Mayer. 
Um, so people should look out for his books if they like crime in an exotic location, mostly set around Cape Town. Another very good South African writer by the name of Margie Orford, O-R-F-O-R-D. Uh, their books are, are fantastic as well. Um, so, yeah, I like a bit of crime, a bit of, bit of thriller. Um, going back to to sort of Africa, uh, people would have to hunt around in secondhand bookstores, but there was a guy by the name of John Gordon Davis who sadly passed away a couple of years ago uh, who wrote a series of cracking books, not all set in Africa, some set uh, in Asia where he'd also worked. He's from from Zimbabwe or formerly Rhodesia, and he wrote uh, a couple of books, a few books set in Africa, and then he ended up practising law in Hong Kong, so he wrote and set there. So, yeah, they're my favourite. They sound very much in your genre, aren't they? Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, people if people are interested in writing, it's good to write stuff that you like, not stuff that you think other people are going to like. So I like crime, thrillers, mystery. I like books with a strong female character as well too, and I think Ken Follett was very good at doing that, particularly in some of his earlier yes, books yeah. as well. Circling around, looking back over your writing career, we're sort of coming to the end of our time together. At this stage, if you were doing it all again, is there anything that you would change when you look back over, the, over what you've done in the last 17 or so years? Jenny, I think I, I would have started earlier. You know, I would have taken that risk earlier. But I think, you know, as, as I said, you know, real life has a way of, you know, not trapping you, but your priorities change, you know. If I could have started 10 years earlier, I would have. However, having said that, you know, I, I was... I got my publishing deal. I got the email telling me I was going to be published when I was in Afghanistan uh, in in 2002. Yeah, I couldn't celebrate because we weren't allowed to have a beer. So (laughs) it was was very bittersweet. But uh, that was a pivotal moment in my life and it it affected a lot of my writing. My second book, Zambezi, I started writing on night shift when I was in Afghanistan and, and it starts off in Afghanistan. So that was a life experience that, as you alluded to earlier, has has played, it was quite a big thing in my life and it's had a big influence on my writing over the years. So maybe those books wouldn't have been as fuller or, or like they are if I hadn't had that experience. So uh, there's no point in regretting, you know. I reckon I've still got plenty of years left in me. So while I would have liked to have started a bit earlier, um, I'm, I, I think I was at a point in life where I was able to. So I'm pretty That's happy. great. And have you any thoughts? I mean, this latest book, as we've even talked, I've thought it definitely has got, in a sense, more import, interesting components than Breaker Morant. Have you ever thought about scripting a movie? Yeah, I don't know how to write scripts, but I would love to, yeah. to meet somebody who does. And uh, what I'm trying to do at the moment is 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 try and get more people yeah. aware of this story. Yeah. Not my book so much, but I think this is this is a really important part of Australia's history and the history of this country in Africa, Namibia. Uh, and I'm actually working behind the scenes to try and get some official recognition for this guy, Edward Presgrave. Uh, and and so yeah, I, I I I sort of would like more people to be to be aware of this. I think one of our problems in Australia is we tend to to commemorate or celebrate some pretty funny things, you know, like Breaker Morant was not exactly, you know, the most up and down, straight up and down sort of character. We idealise people like Ned Kelly, yeah. you know, who's a bushranger. In, instead of, you know, I think people are, it's probably the same in New Zealand, people are more aware of the Gallipoli campaign, which was momentous for both of our countries, yet people know more about that, uh, which ended in a withdrawal, than they do our successes in the Middle East and the Western Front. I think that's slightly changing over time. 
So I think instead of, you know, focusing on the fact that we are descended from rogues and criminals and shady characters, there are some genuine heroes out there that we're not even aware of, and I'd like to change yeah. that. Has Mr Priestgrave got any living descendants now? He has, in fact, and Peter Curzon uh, has been able to turn up a couple. I've been uh, meeting recently with Edward Prescrave's great uh, nephew, uh, who's a doctor in Sydney, and uh, we're working closely on, yeah, some form of a, a official recognition for this guy. Um, and, and so there are some connections in the family there, and, and I want to explore this when I get back to Africa as well too with the government of Namibia. It was only very recent years that Jacob Marengo, uh, Prescrave's uh, ally, was really credited for his part in the independence of that country and the independence struggle. There are also better known figures uh, there from other tribes in Namibia that are celebrated. Uh, but Marengo, um, I think also they were they were in probably what is the most mm. remote part of a mm. very remote country in the deep south. And, and I think a lot of what they were doing um, kind of even mm. went unnoticed at the time. So it's time to write a couple of historical yeah. wrongs. There might be another non-fiction book coming up. You just never know, Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> that leads us on to what is next for Tony the writer? What projects do you have in the works, say, over the next 12 months? That you're yeah, thanks, thanks. Good question. Yeah, I'm just finishing off uh, my book for next year, uh, for 2020. It's also another African novel. It's also about conservation and endangered species. But you'd never guess what the most endangered living organism is in Africa at the moment. It's it's a plant. It's it's a cycad. The African uh, cycad. You know, cycads. These funny little Jurassic. Yeah, I've got one in my garden. Aren't you? Well, you want to check out what it is, Jenny, because some of these plants I have learned the rarest cycads can fetch up to a hundred thousand US dollars each on the black market. There is a there's a rather organised and sophisticated illegal international market in cycads for collectors. These are wealthy individuals living in places like Australia, New Zealand, the Middle East, America and Asia who will pay top money for these plants that are just gouged out of the bush where they're disappearing at a very fast rate. Some of these plants, there's only one left you know, in the world and they're becoming increasingly rare. They're the most endangered living organism on the continent, in the world, in fact, at the moment. So I've written a book about... Um, the, uh, the underground trade in plants. So if you can imagine people in sensible shoes carrying AK-47s, that's what we're talking about in this next book. <laughs> My goodness. And they're, they're also quite slow growing, aren't they? Yeah, they're very old, you know, these plants. I mean, they date their origins date back to the Jurassic eras, but there's uh, one in Cephalados woody, uh, which is the rarest cycad in the world. He's very rare because cycads need a male and a female to reproduce. I've learned a lot about plants. There's <laughs> only one of them. And he's in, he's, he, he's a male, is in Kew Gardens uh, in, in London uh, in, a, in a greenhouse. And, and he's possibly eight, nine hundred, a thousand or more years old, you know. Uh, and, and so, yeah, these things, and they're very, they're very hardy. They're very easy to smuggle. You just cut off all their spiky leaves and wrap them in plastic and they'll last for months without water. So they're a very tradable uh, shippable sort of commodity and uh, you know it's it's a classic story where you know poor underprivileged people in Africa are being paid a relative pittance to destroy it to pull these things out of the wild where they should be and then they're traded internationally for, for people with too much money mm. really and and so these plant species are, are going uh, unnoticed and, and disappearing off the face of the earth and the authorities responsible for their protection in South Africa uh, facing an uphill battle because there's so many other pressures, there's so many mm. other endangered wildlife species that the plants 
events seem to go, go unnoticed. But I think it's equally as fascinating and probably something that people should know about. Fascinating. Actually, it, it, that just reminds me, earlier in our talk, you mentioned that vultures were also a target. What on earth do people want vultures for? Yeah, I wrote a book called Red Earth a few books ago. Oh, um, I didn't read that one. Hmm. Yeah, no, it's about this issue. And uh, I think if people are interested in birds and vultures, they should have a look at it. Vultures are, are killed in South Africa for their use in traditional medicine. Uh-huh. There is a belief that because vultures have such good eyesight, and they do, that's how they spot the carcasses that they're supposed to clean up, that if you, the sound's a bit gory, but if you sleep with the dried head of a vulture under your pillow, its eyesight is so good that in your dreams you will see next week's lotto numbers or lottery numbers. <laughs> if you, if you, it gets worse. If you grind it up and you put it in your kitty's tea or, or soft drink, that they will see the answers to next week's school exam. And on this basis, vultures are, vultures are also killed by poachers. Rhino and elephant poachers in southern Africa will lace the carcass of an animal they have just killed with poison so that when vultures descend on it, they're killed. The reason they do this is because vultures act as an early warning system mm. for the rangers and the military and national parks people. Mm. Quite often the first indication that the authorities get that a rhino or an elephant has been killed is vultures circling overhead and swooping down on them. They'll find it before anybody else does. And the poachers know this, so they figure if they kill the vultures, they won't be spotted next time. Now, vultures are disappearing at a far faster rate than rhinos or elephants. They are well on track to disappear within the next, you know, 10 or 20 years or so. It's a really serious issue that, again, doesn't get as much airplay because, hey, the vulture, you know, people don't really care about it. They think it's a bit of an ugly bird, but uh, it plays an incredibly important role in the natural environment as nature's vacuum cleaner, you know, cleaning up the bush and keeping things safe. Yeah, you are a mine of the most fascinating information. Look, where can readers find you online, Tony? Yeah, so I'm at www.tonypark.net and I'm on uh, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram as Tony Park Author and I love hearing from readers. I've got a newsletter that I promise I only put out once or twice a year so if you go to my website and sign up to my newsletter, you won't be bombarded. You'll only get it a couple of times a year. Uh, but, yeah, I, I love hearing from readers and I learn a lot from my readers as well and I love feedback from readers so I'm quite often asking questions online because I'm interested in what people want in books and what they're interested in. Look, that's wonderful. Look, it's been great talking today. It really has. And I must say that until I started reading your books, I didn't have much interest in going to Africa, but now I do. So you obviously have achieved something. <laughs> uh, well, talk to me, Jenny. I'll sort you out. <laughs> <laughs> Look, thanks so much, Tony. It's been wonderful talking. It really has. Thank you, Jenny. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right 
and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.